Right, we're over at the, uh, the Collective Endeavour stand, and uh, if you could just uh, let everybody know who you are and uh, what's brought you here. Oh, right, my name's Matt Machel, and uh, I'm on Collective Endeavour stand to promote my game, Covenant, uh, which is a story game of failing conspiracies. Uh, if you played any of the late 90s games where the end of the world was just around the corner, uh, this is kind of a take on that, where um, it flips it on its head. came to the year 2000 and the end of the world didn't happen. Which is a bit of a problem, because you're members of a secret society that prepared for the end of the world. So it's all about these people who had these beliefs, and that's been pulled away from them. And how do they change now that that main belief has gone? How does it change their world? It's almost like late 90 Labour's voters. When, uh... <laughs> anyway, um, so from that point of view, then, you've, uh, you've got this game, and you're saying it's a story game. What does that actually mean if you're applying it as a label to something, compared to just it's a role-playing game? <laughs> It focuses more on mechanics that help frame the scenes, help define who's got control of the narrative at the time. Although it does have a GM figure, um, it's much more flowing between the players and the GM as to who has control of what happens. There's uh, options for players to frame their own scenes and narrate the outcomes of conflicts. So there's a bit more of a, we're all here to create a story, um, rather than we're here to experience the GM's story. Or, um, so then are you, are you as the author and, and uh, via the book, giving people a fairly um, specific scenario that they're looking at to, to explore, or is it a game that you can say, there's loads of possibilities here, it could run for years... It's, it's actually designed to play over three sessions. It's designed to have a beginning, middle, and end. So it does have uh, quite a, a fiction style. Yeah, it's, so very, it's very much approaching it in the style of if it was a movie or if it was a novel. Um, each character is defined by three defining beliefs, and those things are currently in doubt because of obviously the situation you're in. And as they go through play, they resolve those issues, mm-hmm. and that's kind of like the character arc that you you go through. So do you think that that is a sort of game that you could play with a system from, let, let's say, 1985? You get a typical system where it was very much moving over from random generation to point generation was a, a big contentious issue, but there was no real talk about narrative control, story elements. Could you take one of those games and have a, a satisfactory go at that sort of scenario, do you think? Or do you think that you, you've, you've hit on something that this sort of mechanic is required to tell the stories you need? Yeah, I mean... You could certainly play it with any ga- any generic system. You get a different experience. It's a case of what does the system help you do? Mm-hmm. Um, Covenant is actually there to actively help you put your characters in situations where the world is falling apart, for them, where these core beliefs are being challenged, um, and you might not get that. And it's actually got something about it that um, I often see with uh, what's called indie games, story games. It's not a standard format. It's a relatively small book, but uh, it's quite, quite a sort of square shape to it. Uh, it's quite a slim paperback and reasonably priced. With a lot of these games, we've seen almost not conforming to the, to the norm is the, the, the trademark of, uh, of what becomes of indie games. Mm. So do you then take a, a conscious decision to say, well, actually, I'm going to make this deliberately different? Or is this sort of form factor of the sort of smaller style book just more cost-efficient, more convenient for the sort of product you want to get out there? There's, there's definitely a um, move away from the standard A4 kind of full-scrap-sized book that you will get because people want to try new things. Mm-hmm. And some games, it works to have a different format for I the character sheet in Covenant is square with a circular central region, and I thought it would work better if it had a 
a square book. Right, so you, you've made a, a decision not to say, I'm going to make this book this size because that's what, um, say, a particular shop demands to fit on the... Yeah, and to, to be honest, a lot of shops will say things like, oh, I want all my books to look the same. But actually, if you want to sell your book, you want it to stand out and be different. And for indie games, that's really helpful to have a little, slightly different form factor, to be on different shelves, to stand out from the crowd a bit. Well, we've actually seen things like Wizards of the Coast. They produced the new version of the Star Wars book in the last couple of years. That's not the standard format. It's much more of a squat square format. Do you think this is something that um, it's just independent evolution of things people trying different? Or do you feel that the, the sort of indie games culture has actually opened up people's eyes to say, well, you know what, other things can work? I think it's parallel evolution in most cases. Uh, you, you look at the project you're working on and go, what would work best for this? And yeah, the coast think, yeah, a square book would work well for us. And I thought a square book would work as well. I, I don't think there's, a, there's as much bleed over as people would like to kind of account to the indie scene for that kind of thing. I turn something like the collective endeavour. You're obviously a, uh, a very professional. Me, yes, I'll just drop <laughs> the recording equipment. Carry on. <laughs> as my colleague drops his microphone, um, I, I'd do the same, but I think since it belongs to him, I won't. Um, way to derail, derail me, Mark. Uh, with something like Collective Endeavour, what is actually Collective Endeavour? We've got the, the sort of the, the star, the um, everybody here sort of pulling together. Is this something that you've picked up from like the Forge, the American style? Yeah, well, it, it came about at Gen Con 2006 in the States. Um, a load of us guys from Britain went over, um, selling our games on the Forge booth, and we thought, well, there's nothing equivalent in the UK. And it's expensive if you're a small press publisher to go to a con, pay a couple of hundred quid for a table on your own, and maybe not make the money back. But if you band together, you A, get more attention, and um, it's cheaper for So realistically, you, on your own, um, you've got this particular game, comes out, you're going to sell it. Could you really do any convention promotion apart from running a couple of games if it wasn't for something like Collective Endeavour? Oh, yeah. It allows a small um, publisher to basically have a larger presence. And because everyone's here supporting you, I'll demo other people's games, I'll sell other people's games for them. It's this whole idea of mutualism, helping each other out, because we're not competitors. The role-playing market is so small, and we're a smaller, small niche of that market. We're not competitors, because if someone's interested in my game, chances are they're interested in... Cold City as well. Um, so there's a lot of kind of cross promotion you can do, and it works really well. And what's your background that sort of led you to do this game? Was it just the idea came to you in a flash, or is this an evolution of your own role playing style? Uh, it's a bit of both, really. Um, the idea kind of came to me when I was playing a lot of the late '90s World of Darkness games. Um, end of the world, round the corner. It, it was all very sort of fan de cercle where everybody's saying, "Well, let's have World War Three yeah, pre-millennial angst." There was a lot of it, and I thought, "Well." Wouldn't it be funny if all of that was just complete nonsense? And how would that affect the people who invested so much in this kind of mythos? So it's almost a historical document in a way now, since that's actually what's happened to quite a number of these people. Yeah. They're all set up for the end of the world, and then, oops, actually my bank account still works, and uh, all the computers didn't crash. And work starts again at 9am the next day. Um, you, yeah. must, you must have been terribly disappointed that work starts again now. Oh, yeah, it's awful. Um, but yes, yeah, it's been good, and... Um, like all these things, it was put up on the internet for free originally, um, around about 2000, and um, it's got progressive feedback from people over the years, and eventually reached a stage where I thought, yeah, this is good enough to put into print in a form. That seems to be a major thing of, of sort of indie games, and I suppose uh, particularly people like Ron Edwards and so on, pushing this whole idea of mutual support and peer review and feedback and so on. Putting something out for free 
and possibly coming back later and selling it rather than you put a few of your games out for free maybe that sort of the ideas that didn't quite work mm. but something that's worth playing you say well this this is finished that's it it's going out as it is and you're going to pay money for the finished product are you finding that do you think really this game would not be as good as this is if it wasn't for that process or do you find sometimes actually I'm getting a lot of feedback and I don't think these people have quite grasped what I was trying to do and it's almost a bit of a pain is there, is there an element of both? Uh, I think there is an element of both. Certainly, I think one of the few areas where a small press publisher can really shine is the fact that they don't have the deadlines that bigger publishers do. They don't say, oh, we're going to have this game out in six months. Then do the playtesting and find out that it's not as good as they thought, but they don't have time to fix it. A small press publisher has the leisure to kind of take their time, playtest something almost to death, and make sure it works in every aspect. Um, And the internet has allowed people to find playtesters much more easily, find a community who likes the same kind of games um, you're less likely to just put something out there and get people complaining that it doesn't have drowning and falling tables um, because it's not that kind of game um, you, you've got that more although that of course leads to a game in its own right it does, yes uh, but it's this idea that um, you can find people on the internet with similar views on games and get feedback that's appropriate to that game um, and you can kind of tailor it to an audience. You almost have a pre-made sales base as well because you're part of that community. Everyone's helping each other out. Good. So uh, would you say then that with um, this style of game, you're not really looking at here's our game and then uh, 18 months' time, here's the second edition. It's more like a continual evolution and then you're out with a finished product and maybe there will be revisions because I think things like print-on-demand and so on mean that you, you don't tend to have quite so much of a garage full of unsold stock that you've got to get rid of before you do a revision. Does that perhaps lead to a point where you've got to put your, your foot down and say, right, it's going out like this, or I'm going to be revising it for 20 years and we'll never produce it? Oh, there's, there's definitely a danger of um, sitting on something and tweaking the fine details forever, and just kind of sitting on your, your book and going, oh, it's almost done, but maybe I need to change this a little bit or change that wording. Um, so it's useful to set yourself kind of a point in time and saying, yeah, I want to have it done by then. I've had enough feedback, it's working. Um, but yeah, it's a real danger to just put something out there and listen to the feedback forever. Now, the, uh, the expo here, it's, um, it's a bit of an unusual games convention in a way in that you've got um, there's, there's kids, there's card games, there's wargaming, there's the living dungeon downstairs, which I've had a run through yesterday. So a bit of puzzle solving, LARPing, dressing up in a sweaty um, hassock, that sort of thing. It's not just a gaming convention for role players or for wargamers. Since, as you're saying, this is kind of a niche of a niche in terms of the role-playing markets, as you've got a much bigger market uh, here, are you finding that people are coming across who don't do role-playing games at all and have a more open mind? Or do they look at this with just a complete blank stare and it's even more esoteric than Dungeons & Dragons? Uh, you, get, you get a mix of the rea- reactions, actually. You get some people who don't know what role-playing is and you explain it to them. And The advantage we have is we have 15-minute demos. So if people don't know what role-playing is, we can kind of give them a brief idea of what it's like, um, show them a system that they might they might like. Any of the games that I pick up and play um, are really good for that. So um, yeah, I think the mix of people actually allows you to promote to an audience you might not normally get. And you get card gamers who played role-playing games for a while in their 20s and maybe dropped out playing it, but might play it again if it was something that didn't require the organisation, so you can sell to them. And we have things like card games and we've got war games in development as well so there, there oh, are right. various projects that 
can cross-sell quite well at convention like this. And it's not really something where people are making their living from this particular sort of game. So that, does that give you more freedom or does it impose more restrictions? Um, you do get more freedom to push innovative ideas. Um, you, you don't have to think, oh, well, I have to please everybody to get this to make the money. Um, so you can make a game that will sell 30 copies in print and still be profitable, um, which is really good. Um, but for uh, I suppose you haven't got sort of uh, editorial pressure as such and uh, printing deadlines and that sort of thing there are far fewer things to get completely in line and you've got to work to them it's not finished but this draft will have to do because we've got to get it in the shops by Gen Con yeah you are much less pressurised in that in that sense but um, again it also means if you are a small press publisher you're doing all of this work yourself you're being the project manager you're making sure that the artist is delivering their work and that your editor is uh, available at the right time. So you do find yourself getting drawn into a lot of things that are quite involved. Um, so you've got the, the lawyer defending himself in court, this sort of thing, you're, you're really wearing all the hats. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's many hats to wear and you have to be a bit of a small business person, a bit of a web designer, um, your own marketing. So um, again, coming back to this thing of having a collective that's more than just one publisher allows you to draw on other people's skills I'm a professional web developer, um, one of the other guys is a professional marketer, so we've got other skills there to draw on, which makes it easier to get the right tools for the job. So it's a, I mean, really it is a collective, it's not just you're a group of people all doing your own little niche thing, you're very much pulling together across the board to, to I suppose in a way, kind of simulate being a bigger company than you than you really are almost. Yeah. You have a marketing department because somebody is a marketing specialist, it's not just somebody who thinks, oh, I'll have a crack at that. Yeah, exactly, and you've got all these different skills that you can all bring to help each other and be more of a success as a whole than you are as the individual parts. And with things being so easy to publish now and so many people getting into things through the internet and computers and so on, do you, have you noticed um, since the collective was formed that it's perhaps getting more and more diffuse, there are more products out there and perhaps shops, for instance, might be less interested in carrying a title because there are too many to keep track of? Or are you seeing something like the collective has got a bit more clout now and so shops will turn around and say, oh, we know about this stuff and we're happy to put it on the shelf? There's a definite advantage to being a group from that point of view. A single sole publisher who just published something on the internet and now has a print version going to individual retailers will have much more difficulty, I think, getting their products in there. Almost like fanzine editors were years ago where you know, you're very much the bottom shelf if they carry it at all. Exactly, but again, having a group of you saying, well, you can have all of these different games and we all think they're good and we think they're worth something because we've all banded together it kind of gives you an extra bit of clout with retailers because they don't have to buy individual copies of books, they can buy a batch of 10 different games, um, which is much easier for them and, and better for us as well. Smashing. Well, thank you very much indeed for your time, Matt, and uh, good luck with uh, the continued success of the game, and I'll let you get back to, uh, to helping out your fellow members of the collective. Thanks very much. Thank you.